All right, welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. Today is Thursday, April 2nd, and I am your host, Tiny Levitt, coming to you with an old friend from the show. I haven't heard from him in a while, Kevin Flaherty. Kevin, how are you holding up? Uh, doing pretty well, Tony. How are you doing? You know, uh, this is this is the third week in a row I'm, re- I'm recording uh, from inside my car because that's the only place <laughs> that's left in the vicinity of my parents' house where there's quiet. Uh, sure. I've got my three brothers and both my parents are, everyone's either doing school or work, so uh, this is where we could be. Where are you recording? Uh, I'm recording from, uh, from my office, actually, so... It's uh, it's somewhat quiet except for uh, we've got two pretty big dogs who you know are pretty much tearing up the place with, with their owners being home all the time. So a little a little bit more quiet, but it can it can get pretty crazy around here too. Yeah, the pets are definitely a big big winner in Corona, and you can't say th- uh, <laughs> there are so many winners in coronavirus. Uh, but before we get started, I did want to mention that our friends over at um. CBS Sports HQ have been airing the Naismith uh, year-end awards, and tomorrow at noon they're going to be airing the Naismith Player of the Year award, and so if that's something you're interested in, you should go check that out. They do a really great job over there. Um, and uh, yeah, those are those are our pals, and uh, we work together quite often, so be sure to check that out. Naismith Player of the Year, Friday afternoon, at, or I should say at noon exactly, that's when it's going to be. All right, but let's get into it. The reason we are here today, Kevin, is to talk about HEO's documentary, The Scheme, which is about the FBI's investigation into Christian Dawkins and, generally speaking, into college basketball recruiting and corruption in general. Um, And for those of you at home who have not watched the documentary, I am someone who is very sensitive to spoilers, and so I want to be very clear right here at the top. There will be a number of spoilers um, during this podcast, so if you haven't watch the documentary yet pause go home and watch it and then come back and listen to the show now kevin i know you've already watched the documentary i've already watched the documentary and my first question for you is do you already have hbo or did you have to get it special for this documentary because i know i had to get my seven day trial you know i i don't have hbo but i have a a streaming service that allows me to to pick stuff up the day after so that was uh, that was how i wound up watching it Oh, nice. That's a that's a good deal. I might have to talk to talk to uh, off air, off air about it. But you know, the interesting thing about this uh, documentary, Kevin, is that the, for the most part, it's a two-hour documentary. But there's very little new information. But coming out of it, it felt very similar to me to the Rudy Gobert situation with coronavirus, actually, where we were aware of these things. We were aware that coronavirus was spreading even in our country. Um, But once, you know, Rudy Gobert tested positive, things started moving very quickly. And there is actual we can hear the conversations between Christian Dawkins and some high major coaches that we knew about. But you know, had never actually heard the tape and hearing the tape, I, I, you know, to me, it felt a little different. I don't know if that was uh, something that you, you felt. Sure. Yeah. I I don't think that there was, I I think you put it kind of perfectly. I don't think that there was a smoking gun, so to speak, in terms of something that we hadn't heard about before, but at the same time, being able to actually hear the comments and, and hear the conversations, it, it adds context. And I thought, you know, one of the things that they did a good job of in the documentary was, was sort of adding that context. And one of the things that they brought up quite a bit, I feel like, was the the conversational style 
between Christian Dawkins and, and these coaches. You know, it wasn't a one-time thing or, or a sort of thing where these coaches were guarded around this person. You know, it was, it was very open and it seemed like the dialogue was something that, you know, they, they were used to talking to this person. And I think that's something that maybe you don't get when you just, you know, log on it and see a story and somebody prints out the quotes, you don't get sort of that ease and that familiarity. And I think that that's one of the things that really stood out to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the the way Dawkins especially referenced the people that he was doing business with, Jeff D'Angelo, the FBI undercover agent, he was described as a very rich person with connections in the club scene. You know, uh, someone else, Marty Blazer, led him to a guy named Manish. He is a chairman of a bank, very connected person. This is all very comfortable. And like, they, you know, it, it wasn't like they were you know, running some, this has to be exactly as such. It just felt like a very natural conversation, at least through the telling of Christian Dawkins. So for those of you at home, if maybe you didn't watch, you're not planning on watching, here's a here's a quick summary of the documentary. And Kevin, if I miss something uh, or uh, fly over something too quick, you let me know, okay? So Christian Dawkins comes from a big-time basketball family in Michigan, and when he makes his dad's varsity team, the da- his dad was the coach, uh, it became clear to him that he wasn't going to go to the NBA. He was playing with guys like Draymond Green, and that just kind of put it in perspective how good you have to be to make the NBA. So since he had always been interested in the business side of basketball, he started managing his dad's AU team, Dorian's Pride. And he ends up raising over $100,000 in sponsorships for Dorian's Pride, including a jersey and shoe deal with Under Armour, which is much more of a coastal brand than a Midwest brand, which is interesting that he was able to do that from Michigan. He ends up working as a manager slash runner for Andy Miller, big time uh, NBA agent um, after he leaves high school. But that relationship flamed out when Christian, (laughs) this is ridiculous to me. It was so funny. He accidentally ran up over $40,000 in Uber charges on one of Andy's client's credit cards because he forgot to switch which card he paid with on his Uber app. Wild. And and called it Ubergate. You know, I mean, the, the fact that it was, you know, it, it was right there and everything, and, and he called it uh, called it Ubergate, and, and and it's funny because whenever you hear somebody say gate, it's almost always overplayed, right? You know, okay, this thing isn't really a gate, but then you, you know they start flashing through all the headlines sort of generated from his story, and you know maybe this one actually qualifies for gate status. Yeah, I, I, I think this is more of a, a big deal than, say, Deflategate, just personally. Sure. I mean, $40,000 is pretty significant. Um, so after that, he had to leave Andy Miller's uh, company. He starts his own business, Lloyd Management Incorporated. He needs funding. And ends up getting it from a guy named Jeff D'Angelo, who supposedly is rich and connected in the club scene, but he's actually an FBI agent. More on D'Angelo later. The FBI pushes Dawkins to involve coaches in the process so that they can expose corruption in the NCAA, even though beforehand Christian's process, generally speaking, just involved uh, the families and getting money to the families and the players themselves. Eventually, after all this in 2017, the FBI arrests Dawkins and a few assistant coaches from Auburn, USC, Arizona, Creighton, and a couple Adidas executives. Since then, Louisville, Arizona, and LSU have come 
under the most scrutiny, but only Rick Pitino uh, has seen any long-term consequences, and really they turned out to be medium-term consequences. He was fired from Louisville that fall in 2017. Dawkins is then charged with a bajillion fraud-related crimes and is convicted on two counts of felony fraud. He's still fighting the case. Arizona and LSU still employ Sean Miller and Will Wade. Will Wade, uh, LSU actually, since the documentary, has even made statements about Will Wade's employment status to multiple sources, including our Go247 site, where they said, yeah, his job is completely secure. Rick Pitino now has made his triumphant comeback at Iona. He's going to be the coach whenever basketball returns soon, I hope. And so with with all this in mind, three years out, Kevin, what is for you the legacy of this FBI investigation? You know, I, I think it, it's it's kind of funny in the way, you know, the, the documentary sets everything up. Um, you, you look at it and, and you, you say it was kind of bungled. Right. I mean, the the whole thing in terms of the FBI and, you know, the the Southern District of New York, of course, with that famous press conference, getting up in front of everybody, cameras everywhere saying, you know, we've got your playbook. You know, usually that uh, that winds up meaning there are going to be sort of these sweeping changes and and sort of because of the way the case played out, you know, because of some of these things behind the scenes that they show in the documentary it didn't really have that much of an impact. And, and I thought it was interesting, you know, Dawkins talking about uh, talking about how players have been getting paid for 100 years. He's not wrong. You know, right. I, I remember, I, I think there was a, uh, you know, kind of an apocryphal story about Wilt Chamberlain going to Kansas. And, you know, a reporter mentioned that to Fog Allen. And he goes, well, gee, I sure hope he comes out for basketball. And of course, you know, a a year or two after that, or or a few years after that, you know, the NCAA, I think, winds up hitting Kansas with penalties about, you know, things that they may have done to procure Wilt Chamberlain. And that was back in the 1950s. So, I mean, this isn't anything new. And I think with the way that things are set up, the, the one maybe lasting thing that you can say is a positive, I don't think that you know, necessarily people are less likely to pay players or anything like that. I think maybe it's a little more likely uh, with all the name image and likeness stuff going on that the players start getting paid actually legitimately. And that could be sort of the one positive takeaway from from all of this coming out and the way that it hit. Absolutely. I, I want to get to touch on a number of things that you just mentioned later. I want to talk about Kansas. I want to talk about name, image, and likeness. But before, I, th- what you said about Wilt Chamberlain reminded me there's, uh, I, I feel terrible, I don't remember their names, two brothers who in the 1950s uh, wanted to play college baseball. And they went on to become Hall of Fame baseball players, both of them. Uh, but they wanted to play baseball at the University of Seattle. And the University of Seattle basically said to them, uh, sure, we'll give you a scholarship to play on the baseball team, but on the condition that you also star for our basketball team, where they were actually better in high school. And they led Seattle to some real success <laughs> in there. Just like that kind of, uh, you know, under the table conversations has been happening forever. And it's funny that I'm remembering this. I heard this on a baseball podcast, but it's about basketball. And it's just, it's just uh, crazy. And and there are some real standout moments for me in the movie, just like when we reviewed the, the case, uh, I'm sorry, the press conference with uh, the SDNY, but like throughout, I just kept feeling like Dawkins, I'd bet on that dude 
when you're talking about a guy who's bringing in over six figures in sponsorships when for a basketball team when he's in high school, I'm like, wow. He's really well-dressed, really well-spoken. He's a label executive for, for Atlantic Records, and he, did, and he finagled that while he was on trial. Like, d- this guy's impressive, and, and you know, the, the documentary opens up with a montage of respected uh, college basketball people saying, you know, this was a nobody, and, and yet this guy looks really impressive to me. I, I, do you agree? Yeah, I, I think so. Obviously, the background is there, and a lot of times... You know, that's what makes these guys indispensable. I mean, when you look at what Dawkins was able to do, not just at that point, but, you know, the Fred Van Fleet part stood out, I think, to, to both of us, right? Yep, you know, absolutely. the part where Van Fleet, is, he signs with Andy Miller, who is, you know, this NBA super agent, basically. And he's right there on the documentary basically saying, well, I guess Andy was my agent. You know, I guess it said that on my papers, but Christian Dawkins is the one who did everything for me. And those are the people that, that wind up hitting it big, the people who can find their value in the cracks. And you look at, you know, who's who's one of the most powerful people, you know, in, in sort of basketball today it's worldwide west you know everybody always talks about him and he's sort of made this career out of being indispensable at what he does and and while i'm not saying dawkins is west necessarily i think that you can see some similarities in terms of there being gaps that that needed to be filled that he was willing and able to fill and so yeah i mean that that was absolutely a guy that, that you could see that there was some business sense and some savvy and, you know, and, and all of that going on there too. And like you said, you know, the, the whole thing about him negotiating with Atlantic records while he's at the trial basically was, was one of the two funniest parts I, I thought of the whole documentary. The other thing that, that I'll, I'll admit, you know, I, I full on, you know, laughed at was when, um, the the lawyer is it Haney, um, mm-hmm. who who is the lawyer for Dawkins when he basically comes out and says, at this point Christian and his friends are just going to go out and fleece the FBI. You know, like <laughs> I mean, obviously they didn't realize it was the FBI at the time, but like they, you know, he had the conversations with D'Angelo and, and it it seemed like man, the, this guy just doesn't have the business sense, and, and so. To, you know, to find yourself in that sort of situation where he's like, well, all right, if if this guy's giving away free money, then we're we're going to take his money from him. You know, a, a fool and his coin are easily parted. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 talk about the FBI for a bit. And this this isn't in the rundown, but it's worth it's worth the conversation. Like it. it they they really messed this up. Like they, the whole time, they felt just like a, a fish out of water. Like they really didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't understand the system, and and you know what happened in terms of the convictions. I think speaks to that. That you know the only person they got is Christian Dawkins. They didn't get any head coaches. They didn't get any you know shoe uh, shoe kingpins or anything. And even Christian's fighting it, and he's coming out of this looking like a good dude with a you know. I, I hate to say that this is going to push his career forward, but I imagine it will. Yeah, and and the, and the funny thing about it is, you know, this all started. I I thought Dan Wetzel put it perfectly. You know, this all started because Marty Blazer gets in trouble and basically, you know, starts trolling for fish. You know, and, and saying, okay, 
you know, who out there can I get in trouble that's going to reduce my sentence? And, and, you know, you look at the original stuff that they had on Blazer where they were looking at, you know, 67 years or whatever it was. <laughs> and then you look at the added up cumulative penalties for all the people that they arrested. I think they arrested 10 people through all of this. You know, they make three of the 10 charges stick. You know, nobody serves more than a year unless I'm missing something. And so basically, you know, you wind up with a really strong case against this guy who Blazer comes off, you know, kind of like a moron in there a little bit, you know, stealing money from his clients to finance B movies and everything, albeit B movies with Bing Rames, I guess. But yeah, but like uh, somehow he he managed to outmaneuver the FBI. Like this bumbling idiot convinced the FBI that he had something and he's coming out scotch free. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's totally wild. And so I, I think it's the FBI comes off looking really badly for multiple reasons. Like you said, total fish out of water stuff i i mean they apparently didn't have uh, i think one of the problems was you know in journalism school they they talk to you about um leading questions and basically going into an interview where you have your article already set up and how that can really harm you because you know maybe you miss the angle that you should go to because you're already going in and it feels like the fbi did that with that investigation you know they went in and said okay we're going to tie this to the coaches you know the coaches are the way we get this corruption and they were going to try and steer and lead and cajole and do everything they could uh to to get it that way and i'll be honest with you tony i'm not a lawyer uh, i feel like you need to say that up front when you're a, a college basketball writer nowadays but uh, i'm not a, i'm not a lawyer but i have no idea how the fbi didn't get entrapment i mean when you when you listen to those recordings i mean it's very obvious that christian dawkins did not want to go through the coaches and, and was, you know, and, and so it was like he was pushed and pushed and pushed. And then finally, when he said, well, okay, I guess we'll, we'll do this and starts getting money for him and his friends. All of a sudden they're like, ha we got you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I couldn't have said any of that better myself. Um, and so I, I want to take a quick break, but on the other side, you live in the great state of of uh, Kansas, the great state of Kansas, and um, and I think you didn't have to laugh when you said that. You didn't have to laugh. Well, you know, I'm not laughing at Kansas as much <laughs> as the implications of that particular phrase, but um, I, I think Kansas is actually uh, the best example for how out of water. Um, <laughs> the FBI was in this investigation. So we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to get to Kansas and why that illustrates just how ridiculous this case was by the FBI. And then think about this case three years out. What does this mean? And what would have happened if this case had you know, been delayed for some reason until this year or last? So stay tuned. All right, we're back, 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. I'm Tony Levitt, and I'm here with our national basketball writer. Right, that's what that's what we call you? Yeah, yeah, Perfect. national college basketball writer. There national college basketball writer Kevin Flaherty to talk about HBO's new documentary, The Scheme, which covers Christian Dawkins and the investigation by the FBI into corruption in college basketball. And the fundamental claim at the real 
heart of this uh, case by the FBI is that Dawkins and the shoe companies were defrauding universities, publicly funded universities of money, scholarship money, by bringing in players that were at risk to be ruled ineligible because these guys were paying them money. So in Kansas's case, uh, most notably and most recently, this was Silvio D'Souza, right? Yeah, yeah. Silvio D'Souza and then I, I believe uh, Billy Preston. Oh, was, true, true. Was somebody that was that was mentioned along in there too. But as the do- the documentary points out, Kansas has a deal with Adidas where where they earn over two hundred million dollars. So these people, they aren't really defrauding the basketball program or the university. They're funding these programs and doing exactly what the coaches would like them to do, namely bring us basketball players. And to pretend. Sure. And to pretend that there is anything else is backwards and, you know, out of, completely out of touch, um, which only is illustrated more by um, one of my favorite stories of 2019, Late Night at the Fog. Uh, Kevin, I, I don't know if you're aware, but I did a podcast at the end of 2019 uh, when everybody was on break about the five craziest ba- college basketball stories of tw- 2019. And Late Night at the Fog was head and shoulders, my number one. It was actually the inspiration for the whole episode in general. So could you walk us through Late Night at the Fog? And- uh, I can't even explain it to you, Tony, and I was there. And, and that was the, it, it was one of the most shocking things I, I think that, that I've ever seen, certainly, especially given the setting, because, you know, Kansas fans revered their basketball. I'm not saying that that's different from Duke or Carolina or Kentucky or whoever, but, you know, it, it's, you know, Allen Fieldhouse is set up as sort of this church for them to worship at, at the altar of basketball. You know, Jay Billis has called it the St. Andrews of, of college basketball, you know, the, the, the golf course. And, and when you, you know, when you look at that, when you look at the, the pride that those fans have and, you know, the history and the tradition and, you know, the fact that they're ranked number one in the Guinness Book of World Records for the loudest, you know, college arena and just all these things add up. You know, it's it's funny because Kansas went through late night uh, and everything. And then, you know, I was sitting on the edge and I was sitting uh, at one of the corners of the court on press row and I was sitting next to uh, – Next to Scott Chasen, um, our, uh, our our wonderful you know Fog.net reporter, and and you know they were they had like a poll or two out and everything, and you know you see all this, you know Snoop Dogg's coming, and but the thing is like this wasn't a Adidas is also involved with Snoop Dogg, and, and so I think that the pairing for a lot of reasons for late night made sense and, and late night has had a lot of concerts, you know, in the recent past, they had, you know, tech nine there. They've had little Yachty there, uh, which is, you know, a, a bit modern, I think for, for somebody like me, but, um, but, but they've had, you know, concerts at, at late night. It's been something that they've done, you know, Kentucky did Drake. And, and so, you know, there, there, you know, this is not a weird thing in and of itself, but, set against the backdrop uh, of all of the rest of this and you know the the victim language I, I do think Kansas gets a little bit of a bad break about because that was the language that the government used and like you said I mean that just shows how out of touch the government was 
with the case, but it's right there in the court documents. But to have this situation where the NCAA, remember, has come down and said, we have found you guilty of all these penalties before the season this started, or, or at least, you know, these are the violations that we found and gave Kansas a chance to respond, which Kansas has done it and denied all of that. And it's back in the NCAA's court, as I understand it. But the NCAA has basically said, hey, on the heels of that trial, you know, we, we have found that you have done A, B, and C. Um, you know, there there's all this stuff. And then to come out at Allen Fieldhouse, again, this church-like place of existence, and have Snoop Dogg shooting a money gun over by the players and also, you know, you know maybe 10 feet away from where the recruits are sitting. And obviously it's not real money. While there are strippers up on stripper poles, I mean, I, I should say acrobatic dancers, I believe is what they called them. It, it was the most surreal thing. Like, I can't explain to you how surreal it was to see all of that. And I, I honestly, I do not believe Kansas knew that that was coming. Uh, because because the, people that, the people that I talked to afterward... Uh, and certainly, I mean, one of them was, was Bill Self at his press conference was very visibly upset at the way everything went. But, you know, just the visuals of the money gun, the girls on poles decked out in Adidas, you know, and all the different, all the different things. It, it was, uh, I've never seen anything like it before. And I, I don't know that I'll see anything like that you know, again, but just personally, I, I sincerely hope that we do see something like that again. It was tremendously fun for me as an outsider. who was just enjoying crazy content, but you know, well, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a wrestling guy, Tony, but oh yeah, a lot, a lot of people are. And there were a lot of people who, after that event basically said, you know what, Kansas, forget the NCAA, go full heel turn. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just sort of throw on the black, cat you've got one of the nation's best teams you know embrace it at this point and, and i'm not saying that i i agree with that at all but i'm saying like that incident was so there's nothing to describe it that there were some people out there who were like you know what at this point you know throw on the Adidas and shoot money guns everywhere, you know, and everything else. It was wild. Well, to be honest, like, I kind of feel like they did put on the heel, you know, like as, as much as Bill Self could have, you know, professed ignorance after Late Night in the Fog, the promo video for the event had him in an Adidas shirt and a big old chain uh, dancing to uh, Snoop Dogg music and then it's like Late Night in the Fog and then they have the event where they there's money guns and uh, you know what was the word exotic dancers intimate dancers acrobatic dancers. acrobatic dancers and then and then the university is at the forefront of saying no the NCAA we didn't do any of this. this is so I feel like they did and and to be honest like that's that's good and and for from Kansas's perspective like worst case scenario they they lose Bill Self for a year and they come back and they still have one of the best college basketball coaches like ever and so like who cares. Yeah, it, it's an interesting deal. I think, uh, I think a little bit of it, you know, obviously Kansas was going to fight all of the charges, and, and you know, this is probably neither here nor there. But you know, from the actual attorneys that that I've talked to, you know, Kansas has a pretty good case if this thing winds up going to court and, and exists 
outside of the realm of the NCAA. And I'm very interested to see now that Kansas has responded, you know, to, to all of the allegations, you know, if the NCAA comes back and says, well, okay, I see that you say that, but we're going to hit you with a two by four. I will be very interested to see if Kansas does wind up taking this thing to, to court and that I don't know that it's a case that's going to stand up incredibly well in a courtroom. I, I mean, you look, and I realize this is getting a little bit off topic, but you look at so much of the NCAA's case is based off of TJ Gasnola's testimony, which came from, you know, sort of these same trials and everything uh, that, that we're talking about. The only problem is, is Gasnola also said at that, you know, thing that the Kansas staff had no idea what he was doing. And, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying they did or they didn't. I'm just saying I think it's going to be really hard to go into a courtroom and say that somebody is your expert witness and then just leave off part of their testimony that seems like a pretty vital part. No, I I completely agree. And and to bring it back to the, the documentary in general, it just feels like another uh, piece of evidence in the whole ordeal that this is like, you know, really haphazard. And, um, you know, the thing that, I, after I finished walking the doc, watching the documentary, I stepped out into my parents' driveway. We have a hoop, and I was just shooting around with my dad, talking through my thoughts. And I said to him, you know, like, this, this, they arrested him in 2017. And now this documentary came out in 2020. And what, what a long time it has been in college basketball uh, in those three years. You know, since then, more than half the states of the country have name, image, and likeness legislation on the books, and others have them pending. Mark Emmert and the NCAA have been called to testify in front of Congress, where, uh, if, if you'll pardon my uh, editorializing for a second, they were ripped by a Senate subcommittee. And public opinion is much, much more in favor of college athletes being compensated in one way or another for their contributions to the greater NCAA project. And so I wonder, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, you know, what would have happened if this case, you know, they didn't make an arrest until, I don't know, four months ago, you know, before all this coronavirus stuff. And we were just thinking about how the NCAA is, you know, making all this money, signing all these new TV deals. And these guys are getting, you know, $100,000 worth of scholarships over four years. Sure. Yeah. I, I think that, Name, image, and likeness probably would have happened at some point, but I don't think that there's any doubt that this served as an accelerant and, and really got that process going. As the Adidas people kind of said in their defense at the trial, you know, we we weren't bidding against ourselves. You know, we're 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 not out here. You know, and, and they didn't even argue. You know, hey, this guy got paid or or whatever else. The thing was was you really think that we're going to pay this guy 150 grand if nobody else is bidding. And, and so uh, I think that there's been a, a little bit of a push, you know, for, for student athlete rights, for, for name, image, and likeness at the very least, if not, you know, a, a more accurate value uh, placed on, on a scholarship. But I think that with all of this happening with people, not just feeling like, okay, our rival school probably bought that shooting guard, but really seeing how widespread everything was. And it's something that anybody involved with, with 
you know, high school recruiting with, with college basketball isn't surprised by, I don't think, but people on the outside, I think it really served as sort of this beacon that, that says, okay, well, if everybody's getting paid anyway, then then why don't we find a way to, to do this in a way that it really benefits the student athletes and, and maybe potentially eliminates the need for, for some of the shady characters and, and different people around the game that maybe don't need to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about, um, how, you know, this, this is happening on a wide scale. I, I think the, just hearing the conversation between Christian Dawkins and Will Wade about Javante Smart was just really illustrated that point to the nth degree because, like he said, you know, he made Will Wade said he made a strong ass offer for an in-state guy who you know wasn't a five star and like Will Wade said on the call, he was going to be a two three year guy. This isn't a one and done player, and he still is worthy of a strong ass offer from a very serious college basketball program. And so it's not like it's just these top guys. I thought that the Wade stuff was the most damning. Um, when you're looking at stuff outside of I, I, I should say the most damning was the FBI. Uh, I think the <laughs> FBI came off worse than everybody, you know, in that uh, in that documentary. But I think that of the coaches and everything, you know, there was talk about what Sean Miller may or may not have been, you know, on the record saying it, and all of it was was kind of stuff that we had heard before. And I felt like with Miller, there's at least, there's at least a little bit of wiggle room in there. Maybe, you know, a little bit of stuff where you know he doesn't come out and say, I want to pay Nazir little 200 grand. You know, he's asking like, Oh, Miami's going to be paying him. They have an advantage in that area. And so I do think that there's, you know, a little bit more, um, leeway for Sean Miller, if you will, with, with all of this based on his comments in there and all of that. The the thing that's that's rough on Miller that we already knew about it and all of that were were just the, the book comments basically, you know, making it sound like, hey, Sean Miller's paying these guys out of his own pocket, etc. And I know Dawkins editorialized it and came in and said, okay, we're we're talking about money, etc. I do wonder how much Dawkins's stuff will actually uh, uh, how, how much that will actually affect just given that the fact that now he, as he put it himself he is a convicted felon and so you know you do wonder what kind of weight that's going to carry but you don't have to have Dawkins when you have Will Wade on record you know saying you know I made this guy a, a strong ass offer and yeah, he's he's not talking about you know scholarship or, or different things, and I think that was one of the clips, Tommy, that I really wanted to hear getting yeah. in because I think that was one where context was important. You know, is he is he making a joke here? You know, is he you know is this the sort of thing where he's you know it, it's taken out of context and just based on what we saw, you know. I, just based on what we saw, I, I thought it was it was pretty damning for way the way that it came out and, and the way that that clip played out. Yeah, I, I, at first listen, I agree. I agreed with that sentiment that it's pretty damning. And then I thought, you know, LSU has already come out in his defense, and I think sure. I think about all the coaches who have been implicated: Will Wade, Sean Miller, Rick Pitino, tangentially some other coaches who have, uh, you know 
been involved maybe in Maryland in the D'Souza situation, USC, Creighton, other schools that were like tangentially involved but not at the center of this thing. The only person who ever lost his job uh, among like the head coaches was Rick Pitino and that was probably more due to an accumulation of sins than anything else. And for an LSU, for an Arizona, for a Kansas, or for whoever else might get dragged into this before, you know, everything settles, like, maybe they're just saying to themselves, look, Congress is telling the NCAA, you need to speed up your timeline for name, image, and likeness. By the time... uh, the NCAA forces us to take action against our coach. All the things that they're going to be telling us our coach did and therefore is deserving of punishment for are going to be legal. And are they really going to, to follow up with this? No. And so if I'm LSU, I totally get it why they just said, you know what, to hell with it. He made a strong ass offer. He has job security because by the time anything comes down on them, it's already going to be over. And we're going to have admitted that these college athletes probably should have been getting the money in the first place. Sure, and I, I think there's an argument to be made too. You know the the whole poisoned well thing. You know the fact that the fact that Will Wade's strong ass offer didn't come because you know he just decided to go out there and and pay Javante Smart when nobody else was willing to pay Javante Smart. And so I think there's always kind of been not not necessarily. Uh, and I get why a lot of people would have problems with what I'm about to say, but I think there's always been at least a little bit of a case of, you know, just, just throw everything out and start over because it is, it is so poisoned and there are so many, it is, it's so deep and there are so many schools involved. And one of the things that I've tried to tell people through all of this is, there have been different people who's, you know, they're, uh, they, they've looked at their rival schools getting named in some of this stuff and, and have basically done, you know, the whole Simpsons, you know, Nelson, ha ha, and, you know, pointed over at him and everything. And I think that, you know, if I were to recommend one thing, it, it's that there are schools that I'm relatively certain you know, we're fairly clean. Like I, I wouldn't think that say John Beeline was out paying players at Michigan, but there's nobody that I would stake my 401k on. <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's where I think it, it really is, is I, I, I think that it was widespread enough and, and, you know, was in so many different places that it is going to be tough to really find, you know, find, people to penalize without it seeming somewhat arbitrary that okay well you hit these four schools but what about the 100 other schools yeah any punishment would feel empty and almost like you know we're just doing it so that we could say we have something sure sure and and that's the and and that's where all of this is, is headed and i think you're right you know if lsu waits this thing out you know there's there's not necessarily any reason to not and when you look at the way that recent NCAA cases have gone, the ones who have had the most success are the ones that have fought the NCAA. 100%. The ones who have cooperated and handed stuff over and, and said, we are an open book. Come look at our stuff. You know, We're self-reporting these. Those are the ones that get hammered. And, and so I think there's something to be said for you know, 
even if, you know, the, the police pull up and there's a body right in front of you and everything for, you know, pulling the shaggy, it wasn't me and, and getting out of there. <laughs> you're, you're full of references today. Well, <laughs> old, old references, old references. Good references nonetheless. So I, before before we head out, we're hitting the 40-minute mark, and I want to be considered yours and our listeners' time. But my, my final question for you is, is to me – the Rick Pitino firing press conference day and the Southern District of New York press conference with the tables and the We Have Your Playbook, that felt like a moment to me. And I think it did for everybody else who you know really cares about college basketball. And in that moment, I thought there was a lot that was going to go down. And I couldn't put it exactly into words what I thought was going to go down. I just thought, you know what, was going to go down. And so I'm curious, Kevin, at that moment when everything seemed to be falling apart and we didn't know that this was a bungled operation where these people were out of their element. What did you think was going to happen for college basketball and how much of that has actually happened? I thought it was going to be huge. And, you know, I, I talked to, you know, several uh, college coaches who were scared and, and not necessarily uh, scared because, Hey, you know, whatever, but they were kind of like, you know, we never knew that, that this activity that was, you know, illegal by NCAA standards was going to, you know, have you sitting in prison. And, and I think especially early on, there was maybe a fundamental sort of lack of understanding of, of what the case was and, and what people were being actually arrested for, you know, and, and I think that when, when you look at, you know, what, uh, what actually wound up happening, it, it wasn't any anywhere near that. And I think, you know, the documentary hits on, on a pretty good reason why. And that's that when they arrested those 10 people, I think they felt like somebody was going to turn and just 100%. say, you know what? And, and just said, you know what? You know, I'm from Oklahoma State. I'm under arrest. Well, okay, let me tell you what Kansas and Baylor have been doing. And then you go and you get the Kansas and Baylor guys and they're like, well, we were only doing it because, you know, North Carolina and Clemson were doing it and it was going to add up. And instead, you know, especially with Dawkins electing to fight through all of this and everything, the the case just wasn't there. They didn't get people to flip. And so there wasn't this giant sort of inflammatory flood of information where we wound up having you know, every school in college basketball talking about, Hey, this is going to happen. And, and this, you know, wasn't going to happen. And I think too, the other thing that, that maybe hurt this a, a little bit, and I know, you know, Jason Shear uh, with, with our wildcat authority site would, would probably agree with this. I think it lost a little bit of its mojo too. And that there were some false reports from various, outlets about what may or may not have been contained about the timelines and and things like that. And and the issue with that is, is even if you get 80% of your stuff, right, if you're wrong on the other 20%, nobody has any reason to believe your other 80%. And I, I feel like, you know, we, we tried to take things slowly, you know, as they came and not that, not that we were, you know, that anybody was necessarily perfect or anything like that, but I do think that 
maybe it chances where this could have been ramped up through different revelations to the media or, or different stories that people thought that they had, et cetera, the way that they were kind of bungled too, maybe, maybe cost this thing a little bit of steam. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I had totally forgotten about this, but now that now hearing what you just said, I'm remembering there was like a, a few months when there was a question it's only a matter of time before this spills out into Nike and Under Armour too. Sure. And I think that was part of the conversation about having someone flip. They, I, I think they were certain that there, it was only a matter of time before someone flips on someone in a different company and then it would have really blown up. And th that promise was like, if anything, like the one that was fulfilled the least. Well, I thought it was interesting too. You know, one of the things that maybe kept it from getting that way um, was the court basically saying, we don't care. And, and the judge basically saying, this is not relevant to the case. And, and that was something they touched on real briefly sort of in, in the documentary, but I thought it maybe even merited you know, more discussion than they gave it. You know, I, I think that there was an intention to come out, you know, especially on behalf of, you know, the, the Adidas executives in, in particular and say, well, you know, you have us saying this, but what about, you know, Duke paying Zion Williamson $150,000? I'm not saying before anybody stops right here and sort of circles that, I'm not saying Duke paid Zion Williamson $150,000. I'm saying I think that's what the defense kind of wanted to get into court was to basically say, well, okay, you can't penalize us if Nike and Under Armour are also doing A, B, and C. And here are some examples of them also doing A, B, and C. And the judge ruled that it wasn't relevant. And so without that stuff coming out in court as well, I, I thought that that, you know, kind of maybe stopped, uh, stopped the flow of information and, and the chance for, for people to sort of generate headlines by, by coming out and, and making sort of these wild proclamations and everything. And, you know, like, uh, like Haney mentioned, even in the Dawkins trial specifically, you know, he tried to try to get coaches up there and it, it didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's funny that that kind of both allowed the FBI's case and the SDNY's case to live and shot it in the foot because that allowed them to maintain the farce that people are defrauding these universities, but then it also kept them from being able to extend the net of what they were talking about. So the whole thing, I don't know, it, it just feels like really out of touch. It feels out of date, you know, like it's, I almost wish that this documentary had somehow, and obviously these documentaries to be well done like that, they take time and it's complicated and, and the cases that are ongoing, uh, make that difficult, but it almost feels like, God, I wish this had come out two years ago. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of that episode of the wire, um, where cheese kills his dog and they pick him up on the wire talking about i killed my dog and he actually meant his dog after his dog <laughs> lost in a lost in sort of a controversial you know dog fighting thing but they 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 bring him in and everything and they're ready to get him to flip and you know they're they believe that they just have the this giant case and you know hooray we've landed this this top lieutenant, you know, drug lieutenant to, to prop Joe and everything. And they get him in and realize it was just his dog. And I think, uh, I think one of the characters said, said something like, you know, 
they said, what are you charging against him? And he said, littering, animal cruelty, if you really want to go wild with it or something like that. And, and so that was that was kind of what this felt like. I mean, you, you had all this buildup and, and the FBI probably felt like, man, you know, we've got this giant case. As Haney points out in the documentary, the Southern District of New York does not go after these kinds of high-profile cases and and make statements like that unless they feel they've got you dead to rights. And and they even said, you know, at that that press conference, how confident are you in getting convictions? And they said, we're very confident. And and so, you know, things, you know, A, B, and C didn't really go right for them. And what we're left is kind of with this, this interesting documentary and, and nobody's serving even up to five years of jail time when originally they had a guy for 67 years. So it, it kind of worked out funny like that. Well, Kevin, I couldn't I couldn't wrap this up better than that. And I certainly could not make a pop culture reference better than that. You're really on your you're really on your game today. I feel like uh, hanging out with your pets so much uh, is doing you good. HBO just released The Scheme. It's a documentary about Christian Dawkins, NCAA corruption, and, and the FBI investigation to both those things. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, I should say at noon exactly, Naismith is announcing its Player of the Year award. That's going to be live on uh, CBS Sports HQ. They're going to be announcing the Naismith Player of the Year award on CBS Sports HQ at noon. You should tune in there. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really fun. Thanks a lot, Tommy. Have a good one.